In March 2019, we were joined by Max Porter in the bookshop to discuss his new novel, Lanny, in conversation with Ali Shaw. Lanny is a beautiful yet unsettling novel set in the English countryside, detailing the lives of a number of people in a small village during the awakening of dead Papatoothwood. I think, can everyone hear me okay? I think uh, Max is going to start by giving us a reading from the book that's going to introduce us to the main characters and their voices, and then we're going to do some questions, and then at the end, um, we'll see if anybody here would like to ask a question as well. Okay. <clears throat> Blackwell's, Blackwell's own label beer. <laughs> um, this is about ten minutes reading, that's all right. This is from the end of part one of the book. Can you hear me? Um, this is from the end of part one of the book. Um, part one is, is, is formally different to part two of the book. Um, but uh, basically it's about a friendship between an old man called Pete and a young boy called Lanny. And also Robert, who is Lanny's father, who is a man who commutes in and out of London. And Jolie... Lanny's mum, who is uh, was an actress, an actor, and now is uh, writing a crime novel, uh, and, it, and Pete is teaching Lanny art. And um, by this stage in the book, you know these people fairly well. Um, Lanny's dad. I wake up, fists clenched and buzzing, certain of someone downstairs, someone in the house. I used to get this a lot, but I'm more accustomed to the sound of the village now. I know a hedgehog making his way along the planted borders. I know the postman's early footsteps on the gravel. I know the alien hum of Mrs. Larton's late-night tumble drying. This isn't that. This is a human body moving. There is somebody in my house. I don't wake her. I get the cricket back from the wardrobe and the little bones in my feet crack as I tiptoe out of the bedroom. My pulse is loud in my ears as I creep across the landing and pause, listening at the top of the stairs. Nothing but my thump... Thump, thump, so gingerly down the stairs. Nothing. The words in my brain from the script of terrified male homeowner. Come on then, you fucking fuck. And the bladder squirm because I have no actual defensive power. I am not brave. I do not fight. Have never fought. I work in asset management and only fight in subtle ways on Microsoft Outlook. I am terrified. There's nobody in the kitchen, but it shits me up being in there, imagining someone looking in, loads of them, lines and lines of men with hessian faces, with razor wire and acid farmers by day, killers by night, invisible just beyond the window pane, watching one of their numbers stalk me through this house. Jesus, it scares and humiliates me. So I start to swagger a bit, performing the just looking in case I'm being watched. How daft to be worried about what people think, even as I genuinely think there is an intruder in my home. Nobody in the hallway, nobody in the lounge, no axe between my shoulder blades, no shotgun pointed to the back of my head. Behind me, just the corners of my house. In front of me, just a dark interior designed by my stylish wife, my own reflection. And I fling open the understairs cupboard and I feel a proper chest pain, an angina spasm of dread. And then there is a tight squawk from upstairs. Robert! I run up, three steps at a time, imagining with absolute conviction and clarity that there is a big man in a dark cloak in my bedroom and he has a knife against my wife's throat and I stride in, bat raised, and she is sitting up in bed. I heard something. Me too, I can't find anything. My ballsy woman, she looks fucking terrified. She whispers, in here, there's someone in here, there's someone in the room. I run over, bat in hand, and I jump into bed beside her. Suddenly childlike, I'm not brave at all. I think of newspapers printing photos of our blood-stained walls. My heart is whumping in my chest. Is he in the wardrobe? Is he made of the sheets? Is he in the ceiling? Is he in my wife's skin? Is she hiding him? Can I kill a person? Will it hurt? Will he torture us? I'm frightened. I'm frightened. 
a rustle and a movement right here, right with us under the bed. There is a man under our bed in our bedroom. We are going to be killed in our beds. She is gripping my hand as hard as she gripped it when our son came ripping his way into the world. I need to do this. Maybe it's a lost cat or a frightened refugee or a dying fox or a robed poltergeist. I need to do this quickly and surprise myself with bravery. So without too much pause, curiously calmed by the recognition that she needs me, that I'm caring for her, I swing out of the bed. I roll and land on the floor with a thump and raise my arm, ready to swipe the bat hard across the carpet, ready to smash my bat again and again into the face of a man. Under the bed, eyes wide open, possibly asleep, possibly awake, is Lanny lying stiff and long like a rolled-up rug with his arms by his side, under our bed, gazing beyond me, our child. No expression whatsoever on his face. Later, both of us are awake and talking it over. She says, I was too angry. You called him a freak? I know. You need to apologise. I know He's grown up enough to know that he gave us a fright and I was angry, and he needs to stop doing things like this. It's worrying. You need to apologise to him. I know. I'm sorry. I was appalled. I'm sorry. I don't think I've ever been more frightened in my whole life. Shall we spoon? Yes, please. <laughs> Pete. Very strange mood. Drunk a few beers and then some whiskey, then some not ready slow gin. The sound in the village was all wrong. I went for my walk around the block and got the ill feeling and hurried back. The darkness was uneven, slippery. I sought refuge in my kitchen, but the pressure between different objects in my house was all wrong. Something was bad. I had a glass of drink on the table, a newspaper and a pen, and the three of them were fit to lift off and explode. Things were closing in. I sat and breathed, six in, six out. On the fridge was a postcard from my friend Ben, a Revilius. The wonky Westbury horse with the train popping along behind. I've treasured it for years. I looked at this image this lovely English thing, and I felt sick. Bile in my mouth, neck sweating like a fever, so I grabbed it off the fridge and I was going to rip it up, but that didn't seem to satisfy the hatred I felt towards it, which was something long, something accumulated. I necked a load more gin and stared at the postcard, and I hated that quaint image. Hatred for this card had seemingly been hiding under the surface of my quiet existence for God knows how long. My whole hateful, guilty life queued up ready to land on this poor image. I loathed it in ways that I'd been keeping about my person, in my beard, in my ears, under my fingernails, since my parents told me to sod off because I was a faggot and a disgrace, since I first read those pamphlets about what the brave Englishman did in Bengal, did in Kenya, did in Northern Ireland, since I first watched animals slaughtered, since I first sold my fucking soul to a London gallery, to a glossy magazine, since I first saw supermarket carrier bags in the throats of rotting seabirds, since I saw behind the crematorium curtains of the giggling assistants dropping ash on the floor, this all queued up. These painful things. I don't know what was going on, but I was steaming now, growling vexed. And I got a biro, and I sat down, and I very carefully drew lines across that postcard. Then I rotated it and drew lines across those lines. A grid to obscure the lush Wiltshire hills, the mysterious Neolithic bullshit, the pleasing clouds, the lovely chuff-chuff two-dimensional train. Fuck every lying English watercolour acre before and after it, every moron riding it, and again and again, hatching away across, tightening the grid, revilious disappearing into the night again, poor man, shiny black ink smudging and denting and obliterating the nice gesture of my friend Ben. I did not know myself. I did not know what on earth I was. Lanny's mum. I can't sleep. 
Robert's breathing sounds like a small door catching the carpet as it opens. Click, scuff, somebody enter. Click, scuff, somebody leave. I usually sleep well with the villages tight and muggy. When I was very unwell, when Lanny was a baby in London, I read all sorts of things designed to scare young mums about cot death and crushing, choking and allergies, flat skulls and bent backs, damaged eyes and bad milk. And one night I woke up and Lanny wasn't breathing and I accepted it. I accepted it easily. It was the middle of the night and I was thirsty and I'd forgotten my lines and my duvet was boiling. I'd been dreaming about that film where the man in the barn pretends to be Jesus. The streetlights were toxic yellow through the curtains and the baby had died. I lay very still. I didn't touch him. I didn't scream. I didn't move or wonder where Robert was or panic or cry. I lay still and I could think clearly. It's over now and you can have yourself back, I thought to myself. This tragedy will be the whole story of your life, but it is your life and you can sleep forever and ever if needs be because you have won sleep and lost fear because there is no more baby. I remember that night and I strangely cherish it. I am comfortable in my bed, in this house, in this countryside. I remember a bit of a prayer or a lyric about passing unharmed through fate's unkind embrace. Dead Papa Toothwort. Dead Papa Toothwort steps up from a brown puddle and walks through the village dressed like a normal bloke. Flat cap rain mac and sensible boots out for an evening stroll. He whistles his song and the song is a set of private instructions. He feeds his plan into this ordinary home county place, sliding it like lubricated wire into the soft flesh of the village, into buildings, gardens, sewage pipes and water tanks, up the lane to the big house, round the back to the sports pitch, into beer pumps, into the books in the classrooms, into the gas and electric, into the bell in the church tower, sucked into nostrils, rubbed into cotton, into the bodies of men and women, folded into sweaty creases and scratched into red eyes, into the dreams of the children and the bones of sleeping house beasts and he whistles and whistles and gives so much he can hardly hold any idea of himself together he has done this before but never with such sincerity he means this terrible thing he's meant it forever he makes a once in a century effort whistling his dream into being setting the village up for its big moment by the time he gets to the edge of the woods he is crumpled into nothing more than a whiff or a suggestion he is only silent, warm, crepuscular danger. And the badgers and the owls have seen this before. And they know not to greet him, but to hide. Thank you so much, Max. That was brilliant. And that, I think, gives you a taste, if you haven't read the book yet, of just how wonderful these different voices are. Um, of the different characters that you're going to spend the novel with. Um, I want to keep, because it hasn't been out for very long, I want to try to keep clear of some, some of the major story beats and things. But I think this character, the last one that you read, Dead Papa Toothwort, is someone that we should talk about first. Because this character, for anyone who hasn't read the book yet, is incredibly important to the, to the whole of the novel. Um, and if, you, if you've read Grief, It's the Thing with Feathers... You know, the character of Crow and um, how, how strange and fantastical and spiritual that character is. 
Dead Papa Toothwort seems to me a very different character, but from the same realm. Mm. You know, this is a shape-shifting sort of nature monster, to to put it in a in a very short um, short way. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about who he is and how you came to invent him, and and also you know why 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 this nature creature. Um, shape-shifting nature creatures, just right. That's exactly what he is. Um, well, the, the simple um, reason that I'm not apologetic about um, and wouldn't seek to, to disguise in relation to the two books is that I, he allows me to have fun with language that isn't possible in the social realist mode. Mm. Um, I want these characters that are ravenous for different types of language and seek in the way that they speak uh, to dismantle the the hierarchies between language that we that we work in. So he is Toothwort is using slang as much as he's using quite highfalutin technical language, as much as he's using he's in a romantic mode, he's flirting with kind of blood and soil. He's also he also is addicted to the most banal um description of ingredients on a crisp packet, you know. So he's he's democratic, linguistic and playful. And I, and it's fun to write. And I find it easy to write and he's the one I enjoy writing and all that. So that's one answer that I don't mind being honest about. Um, more than that, he's, uh, he's a mythic device who is armed, unlike the Green Man, in, in a mythic context, with a knowledge of his function. He, he's postmodern in that regard. He, he, he knows he's kitsch, and he knows that he's doing things that other characters can't, which is what he has in common with the Crow. He's less of a literary homage than, he, than Crow. He's less based on literary prototypes, and he's not having that kind of fun. His fun is, is historic. He's a, he's a voyeur. He's been looking at this village since, bef since this village was a village um, and falling in love with the, with the language of the people that live there. Um, so he's a sort of, uh, a, you want to be careful with words like pervert, but he's a pervert uh, for language uh, and, and for domesticity and, and, and the kind of ritual of daily life. Um, so he's, what he's seeking is to get off, he's getting off on the place and what gets him off more than anything and, and it's fine that there's a sexual overtone there because it is mildly sexual or certainly erotic for him is the child who is at this crucial point between childhood and adulthood. He has childhood innocence and eccentricity, but he is already sort of surfing the waves of, of, of adult socio-economic context and, and nuance, and that's the sweet spot if you're toothwad. If you've been watching people shagging and shopping and dying and hanging each other and starting wars for thousands and thousands of years, then what, what do you still find fresh and interesting children? One of the things that, um, that I, I'm going to just hold up to show, if, if you haven't seen it already, here's, here's a page of it. I, d I don't know if you can see, but if you haven't read the book yet, if you've got a copy in your hands, you'll see that Toothwort's sections um, have all this text that he's absorbed, the sort of thoughts of the villages or words that he's picked up in the village, this language that you were saying about that he's sort of harvesting almost. And the way that it's... Only the people at the front can probably see this, but... It, the text sort of curves and flows and overlaps uh, and sometimes I think in one place it kind of goes off the page a bit and all of these all of this language you must have had a huge bank of this stuff that you were that you were building up because in, in almost all of the toothwort sections he's picking up these snippets hmm. um, 
can you tell us a bit about where you did? Were you sneaking around villages, eavesdropping on people? Were you? Were you <laughs> I, I mean, aren't we all? You know? <laughs> Someone said, oh, I feel like he's been in my village with a dictaphone. I was. <laughs> um, but actually, I was in your cupboard. Under your, um, I, uh, the, the point about the... the, the, the I'm, I'm very against experimentalism for experimentalism's sake or experimentalism as a kind of um, exclusionary tactic to, mm. to, 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 to make the book feel avant-garde in ways it might not be. And I also don't think it need exist at the expense of other things like plot or humour or whatever. So I, I really was keen to find a way to get the, this what Toothwart's listening to, because he's like a conductor and he's pulling it out of the village, and it therefore had to look like sound on the page, which is quite difficult to do, even harder to read. I tried to read it today. It's a disaster. It sounds like... It sounds like it's a desperate audition for the archers, and you know you're not, you know you're not getting the part, so you keep trying different voices. Like, how about how about this? Would she speak like this? <laughs> and I come across all Brian Blessed when I try and do the the Met. Anyway, um, how do you do that on the page? And, and it, uh, I I didn't want it to be decorative, because it's not poetry and it's not a chorus voice, so it, it has to sh it has to indicate immediately to the reader that they can read it at a different pace, or at least hear it from a different place in their in their oral experience of the, of the book. And so this was italics and the, and the dancing you described was the quickest way of doing that, mainly because it, it, it is apparent to someone that buys into it and someone that's cynical about it that it isn't bound by the same conventions of the printed page. Mm. Precisely where you said it spills over the margin, that's the most crucial thing. It's not literature. It's not me, the author. And I want to play a relatively accomplished... Um, two-way thing with the reader who I'm trusting to, 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 to be familiar enough with the, with the printed page um, and the mannerisms of the novel, chapter breaks, paragraph breaks, etc., to realise what this is in relation to that. Because then there's white space that I want you in and I'm also wanting you to, because there's so much ambiguous stuff in the book, often the village voice is, is the site of my offer, invitation to the reader to come in and ask how complicit they are in some of these things, how relatable they find some of this more worrying material and then I'm asking them to also practice recognising voice you recognise a turn of phrase as a particular character but also as a particular type of person and I want you to be planting yourself in there so it's basically by making the book explicitly song-like in those sections I'm, I'm asking the reader to be more musical in their reading of it as well One of the things plus I just I, I, I loved doing it it was so fun it looks like it was an absolute yeah. pleasure to write oh, Faber let me do it the typesetter and I sat Really? With a pencil, and, we, and I went up, and she went mm, a bit far down a bit, and I go down a bit, and then and I'd say round, and then as Toothwart's plan darkens towards what you just heard, then the 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 village itself darkens, um, and you start to overhear some more unpleasant things, and then it actually squashes together, and and that that was uh, to do with some thinking I'd done about the theatre and the directness of encounter between author and and reader, and and how we could be using that slightly more differently. Um, it's, it's so difficult for it not to become an indulgence, mm. um, but that the the way that you get over that is by making it not mine. It's him. He's well, he's thing, he's yeah. hungry for the listening. I'm not. And much of what he's listening to is uh, the small scandals of village life, mm. the minor domestic matters, or the judgments of the villagers, and and often then the language is very far away from what you might expect in, um, I think you said highfalutin kind yeah. of experimental poetry or something whereas where well, one of the things that I really love is there's a few moments where you don't know which order to read 
some of the lines mm. in, mm. where because one is curving down over another, mm. and and that kind of gives you a sense just in the way it's laid out of how Toothwort's not really a linear no. uh, creation bound up by time. He's been around. For, for centuries, mm. you think he's probably been here since before the village. And there's a lovely there's a lovely piece where it just mentions that he's mentioned in the Domesday book yeah. about the village. So but he's also he's sort of pre linguistic in his whilst being an expert. He so for example he wouldn't necessarily know what benders means. That bend benders is an abbreviation slang or an abbreviation of East Enders, but he hears it and likes it. You know that's why in a way it's like translated fiction. For people that don't read the language, mm. it's sound, but it's, but it's also curious sound. So he, I don't know whether they have an expression in Holland meaning coke fucked, but it doesn't particularly matter because Toothwort hears that and goes, oh, coke fucked. He just loves the it's sound. just glorious because you know it seems to him that five minutes ago he was hearing people talk about the Reformation or, or you know the, the you know so for him it's just it's just a pleasure to listen to. Did it lead you down any interesting? Avenues of research as you as you looked into the he channels as well as channeling language he channels a lot of English folklore yeah and uh, I wonder if that if that sort of turned over any interesting stones it's all it's all interesting isn't it you can keep on it's like being on a shingle beach you can keep on turning over folklore and when you get tired of our tradition there's infinite others so I'm 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 kind of ravenous for that anyway what I what I try I wanted to make it a, a true and realistic portrait of a place you know so my American heads have said to me for example would there be an English would there, sorry would there be an Indian woman in the village I was like, Jesus man it's not 1650 <laughs> uh, I mean yeah we have Indian people living in our villages and they're, they're British it's okay you can you, we can speak freely about the demographic um, so you know I wanted a Hungarian person to critique the taste of the beer yeah. I wanted a, the kind of casual xenophobia we see so freely now because I'm trying to re I'm not try I'm not trying to be subtle about what is a relatively unsubtle situation out there now in the way we speak of each other in this country so in a way the most interesting research I did was to discover going to villages how quaint they are actually like bell ringing practice and we're going to swap um, you know there's been a big scandal at the stay and play big, not if, a big biscuit scandal at the stay and play <laughs> was something I read in a, in a notice board um, and, I, and I, then, you, then you sort of think oh actually uh, is, it, is it possible to sort of romanticise an English village at the same time as you're, as you're trying to be loving in your impartiality I'm really into this idea at the moment it's from Richard Holloway who I'm sure many of you read, a gorgeous thinker and writer, but he talks about compassionate impartiality. Mm. And that's, that's the point of it for me with the voice, is the village. Maybe we can move on to that subject of the village voices, because after the bit that you've read, the second part of the book begins. Uh, the, the first part of the book, the form of it is, is similar to what you'll have seen in Grief is a Thing with Feathers, where you've got, uh, and Matt's just read from, from that part, you've got the labels telling you whose voice you're hearing. But in the second part, you take the labels off, and you had this influx of village voices. So before then, we've had the we've had the main characters, but now we have little snippets of different villagers offering their their judgments and their thoughts on what's happening in the story. And to me, it just added this adrenaline into the, into the book. Into the, the snippets generally get shorter too, and you mm. just get this like a barrage of different voices, different opinions. All incredibly well realised and familiar to anyone who's who's 
been in such a <laughs> Who's stolen a child? Yeah, okay, Ali. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> you had to do that for your research, okay? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, the, the thing is that they all those voices ring very true, I, I think, to the kind of village that this is set in. Um, the village is a... Uh, an, it's an anonymous village somewhere within commuting distance of London. But I think it would... It, it could be one of many villages mm. around England, and it was it was reminiscent to me even of places that are a bit further outside of London. I think as as London or the the ability to work from home yeah. sort of spreads people out from cities further into villages, you get the same clash of the the people who have been in the village mm. for generations, mm. living a certain way, and the people who are coming in and the tribalism. And I wondered if you could, if you could talk to us a bit about your your thoughts on that in that moment, because the last thing I, that I'd want to point out about it was the village is at, at a a transitional moment, as I think all villages are in in England at the moment. And there's a, there's a great piece where one of the elderly residents of the village, he's one of the oldest ones who's seen the who can remember people going off to the Second World War and so on, talks about that transitional moment of the new people coming in and the changes to the village life. Mm. And I wonder if you could talk about what you think there might be to celebrate in that and what you see as perhaps warning signs about the way that our culture and society is moving. Right. <laughs> we don't want to lead you to... Right, yeah. <laughs> I um the, the the thing about the book cracking open at part two is 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 as if um this intimacy is suddenly widened out and everybody is wearing it, 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 it there's suddenly twenty five people on stage thirty forty fifty people on stage as it were um, but they are all wearing masks and and, and you su- you suspect that possibly Lanny is playing all the parts or, or Dead Papa Toothwort is sort of controlling the strings of everybody um, this is a place that would have been defined, uh, would have had an agricultural identity even relatively recently, even 50, 60 years ago but is now defined by its proximity to London in as much as it is, as you say commuter belt, and that, that, that is widening out um, it's, uh, I can say this in Oxford it, it, it's, it's, it's the Barks, Bucks, Oxen it's the Chilterns, effectively and you know that, I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't disguised that you know that because there's bodgers that come down from local hills to make the church furniture and stuff like that um, what, what I'm, effect- I'm, I'm off the camp, um, as any sensible person is, I hope, that there is no such thing as an authentic English person. That we're, uh, Toothwort recognises this instantly, that we're immigrants all the way back. So the idea that you would choose a, a point of time in, history, in the history of these islands and say that that was when England was pure um, is, is, is laughable. Um, and, and ironically, actually... English nationalists tend to choose moments when we were actually most not pure. It's moments of extraordinary um, immigration and, and um, melting pots of different cultures. Um, so what I want to do in the village is not create a binary between the urban and, and, and the rural, or, or, or worse, the kind of metropolitan and, and, and the rural sensibility, uh, but to actually get, once you've stripped everything out, so same with the crime. So say you were to set up a crime novel or a thriller, and you would remove all the bump, um, because we all know what, how crime thrillers work. We've all read really brilliant ones and less good ones, and we're we're, we're well trained to understand how those 
plot architectures work and what character motivation is. And so if you strip all that out, you don't need to meet the policeman. You don't need to know where he comes. You don't need to know that he has a problem with coffee or that his breath smells of coffee or that he was an alcoholic or he was brought down from Manchester after some... You know, none of it. None of it's necessary. But that single line where he says he's standing with the best advice guidelines feeling like an absolute lemon, that's what I want how he is in that moment in relation to everybody else, especially when the sort of centre of the book is this absence anyway. Lanny's never... You never meet Lanny. You don't know how, he, how old he is, how he's described. So you've got a sort of mirrored... Everybody else is a sort of mirrored surface against which Lanny becomes real in absentia. Um, so really the village is... Um, it's, not, it's not even so much any place as... as uh, as a sort of surface upon which the, the real work can be done. And it has to be credible enough so that you're not distracted by its artificiality. And at, at exactly the same point, it has to be artificial enough that you, the reader, know that you're playing... This is a, this is a fiction game. And you're being asked to consider how, what fictions are and what's, what's true within them. So it's a sort of... It's a sort of truth... A model village of truth so that when I drop a bomb in it, you feel that these responses are... Are relatable or interesting or challenging or whatever. And how does how does the village's relationship with nature um, play play into that setting? Could you talk us through that a little bit? Because obviously, the one of the things that struck me that's very that's quite interesting is that um, all this stuff that Toothwort is is picking up. Even in this rural setting, many of the many of the villages are consumed with very sort of human things yeah. and uh, as I said earlier scandals and so on and um, the you know Lanny's parents are his dad is busy commuting back and forth to London his mum is more involved with the village life but only really Lanny is actively engaging with nature mm. obviously Toothwood is but he's a, he's, he's a sort of exemption yeah. because he's a part of nature and I, I wondered whether that is in some ways a um, it, it's a reflection on on how you think childhood should be. Oh, yeah, uh, I hope. I mean, the pro the fixation uh, we have, and particularly it's a, it's a class thing in this country, is with authenticity. Mm. So Robert is is fixated with, with the fact that he will never be an authentic. He will never authentically belong to this place, and that the only reason he's there is because he met a mortgage broker in uh, Canary Wharf that allowed him to be there. Um, so it's sort of transactional for him and therefore hollow and, and that's part of his existential crisis of, of the commuter life anyway and of late capital of, of, of how we all feel now glued to our iPhones um, possibly sort of using nature in, in, in a slightly um, in a slightly artificial way anyway to give ourselves nature kicks or because we've read in a book that it might be good for us mm. we, we have fundamentally as a species bought into the superiority of the human race despite that being the biggest lie of all, you know, we're outlived by, by even the youngest of trees. So, so Robert is sort of figuring that out in a kind of like, um, in a kind of paganism 101, oh, I don't mean anything. I don't mean anything anymore. Um, and, and that's, I, I want that to be a relatively convincing portrait of modern masculinity mm. coupled with his various other problems, um, which I don't think are extreme or, or unusual. He, he, there's been a sort of like save Robert campaign as if I've made Robert this terrible villain because he does such extraordinary things as look at pornography on his phone 
You only need to have a cursory look at the way the internet's used around the world to know that Robert cannot be unusual for looking at pornography on his phone. Um, but there is a sort of, it's almost as if to talk realistically about modern masculinity is the kind of last taboo, and that we're only allowed to briefly say, yes, we have crisis masculinity, but to actually look at what it means is somehow vulgar. Similarly for Jolie to be talking about the, the, the sort of the darker underbelly of maternal life, and actually indeed the eroticism of childbearing and child raising, as well as the kind of abject um, toxicity of, of village life is, is, is sort of, you know, best leave that, best not peel back the Vicar of Dibley's mask to reveal the fact that she's a frothing old racist or whatever it is. Um, uh, as for Lanny and, and the environment, um, I do, I do think I, I, I want to suggest, and, and this is relatively unabolished, or it's becoming something I'm not... When I was writing the book, I didn't think about it this way, and I do now think about it this way, that Lanny recognises and, and feels for nature um, properly. He... he we, we must, you know... The adults in the book are, have, for example, distinct politics. Um, for Lanny, there is no such thing as left or right, or leave or remain, or, or, or right or wrong even, or, or local and national, or anything. For Lanny, when he learns about the environmental crisis, that's the only question facing any of, any of us. Um, so that's what Toothwort recognises and finds alluring in him, is that he is a nature worshipper. And not, for, not in a performative sense, not even as a lifestyle choice, as it is for many people these days. He just gets it. He's a tree worshipper. He's a little pagan. Um, and, that, and, and that's natural. It's, it's not positioned or performed. Um, so that's, that's what it's sort of about, <coughs> ultimately. Um, and, and, and I had this problem of, of the ending, and I don't really believe in endings in books, in novels. I think poems often end so well and often the greatness of a poem lies in its ending uh, I was talking about this last night and I came up with this shall reuse oh no no I won't um, the, well, but I'd quite like to hint at it <laughs> uh, no I won't tell you the ending but I was talking last night about how if you're in a poem and it's a room and, it, and, and the poet as he, as he writes as he or she writes the poem is, 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 is building the space and possibly putting furniture in it and possibly even people and lighting effects um, sometimes scents uh, and then the, the last couple of lines of a poem are often the lights being flicked on for you to see what it is uh, and, and same with short stories a lot of short stories have incredible endings and, and, and their greatness is in the ending like very often you, you might be struggling to work out why or how. Uh, Chekhov is a great short story writer, and only in the last couple of lines do you realise because that, that's his flourish and that's his that's the the, the creaking of the whole ship open. And um, but very often with novels, I'm like, ah, oh, that's not there. That's not enough. That's or that's too much, or that's inauthentic, or you've or you've broken the spell, or or you've undermined the. the You've undermined all the work you did building the spell, and or, or whatever it is. I, I, I'm a bit uncomfortable with endings of novels, so I was going to have five endings, uh, like a choose-your-own-adventure end storybook, but then that was, would also have been a cop-out, and it, it would have also broken the spell. And I also think it would have um, uh, it would have been a kind of violation of the responsibility the author has to, to shepherd people in a in a in a true direction. So the ending is is. Um, is environmentally charged 
um, and I and, and feels like a sort of opening of, of, of my ch chest, um, a sort of bearing of, of the book's soul in a way that um, possibly quite unfashionable, possibly preposterous to some readers, but I absolutely felt it was the right thing to do, um, both for Toothwort and for Lanny and for the other characters in the book that had, had that had been truthful about their position in things. Well, I mean, personally, I think it was the perfect ending for for the story that you'd set up and mm. um, uh, Lanny was a poem about 10-15 about years ago just as a sketch okay. that I put in the drawer um, and um, it had a very different ending and I, I, I have to ask myself why it ended the way it ended now and I think it is something to do with the um, in, impending uh, environmental apocalypse but I think it's also something to do with having kids, my kids growing up, the kind of questions you're asked by your children about about the world and your place in it, and I think possibly also being on the road for a couple of years talking about grief um, would have would have helped, and, and about resolution, and also about um, I'm very interested in, in in ideas of ecstasy, particularly a kind of calibrated ecstasy, an ecstasy which isn't indulgent or or. Um, uh, to do with the pleasure of the writer, an ecstasy which is which is shared between reader and writer, um, or indeed audience and performer, or, or song and, and listener. Um, and I don't I get like I feel about experimentalism and, and control. I don't think that ecstasy need be m mystical or you know that sort of like, as one of my as one of my hatchet job had it. Beware mystical thinking, as if mystical thinking is a sort of is a sort of tree-hugging pox that you might catch and then, you know, you're desperately trying to get to work to make more money and check your emails, but oh, you're, oh, you're, oh, you're finding the sunset beautiful! Uh, you know, how, how counterproductive that might be. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is, it is um, pro-choice um, eco-ecstatic at the end there, yeah. And it begins with the Lynette Roberts poem as well. Um, the Peace, My Stranger is a Tree. Um, I walk this greening sweetness through the earth where sun and sky and sun tender its habits as I would yours. So it is about peace and, and care. And that's the kind of tuning fork that I ding at the beginning of the book for, for the reader to tune into. Um, did, you, did you try to write the previous ending, the ending from the poem? Did you, were these realisations worked at through the drafting process? Yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah. I wrote a, a toothwort ending. I wrote a Jolie ending. I, I wrote a. Uh, I sort of started a Robert ending, and I was actually, actually, Robert, I'm just kind of bored of you. Can't bother with you. <laughs> save Robert. <laughs> I know. I know. Hashtag save Robert. I know, but he's fine actually. He's just playing squash or something. I mean, he's actually perfectly happy playing squash and seeing some of his old uni mates. You know, he's fine. Absolutely fine. Um, there's a bit where, where, where Robert is un, Robert's sexuality is, is, is unresolved for him and that's just a disappointment for him and nobody else that he didn't have people to support him working out how he felt about things earlier on um, and, and partly because of the way he is, is on his iPhone the whole time and because he always feels like a voyeur on the train, in the office, at home frustrated by that, that sort of two dimensionality of his life being slid on the whole time like, hello I'm Robert in every, in every scene, he doesn't ever feel like he's got the rapport with himself yeah. that would, would would allow him to have a sort of fully realised erotic or or sexual existence, yeah. But he's still incredibly sympathetic. Yeah. I hope so, yeah, I like him. Yeah. And, and which makes, sort of befuddles me a bit that there would be people who would think that yeah. he was... In people think he's a villain, villain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's presented incredibly sympathetically. Yeah. As are all the characters, he, and I found that even the voices that are coming out, you know, the villager voices that are coming out, 
with some of the most judgmental things mm. that people from the village mm. say are still presented with an absence of authorial judgment, which I, I think helps to just keep these things as they are, pass yeah. them by lightness and get this idea of what well, everybody is thinking in their totality, just as Toothwort yeah. is doing. I really hope that you can be... The, the only point in the book where I was purposefully unsubtle is in the conversation between Mrs. Larton, who's the kind of hyacinth bouquet character, whose hypocrisy is writ large. Um, that there's a lack of subtlety there. They have a, they have a disagreement. They have an argument uh, around about this point in part two, where everything splits open. It's the first multi-voice part of the book, and she is unsubtle, quite deliberately, because she represents a type of person here and abroad <coughs> in the world now who who have abandoned subtlety in 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 their in their language and, and in their in their contemplation of others. Um, she's she's more subtle than the newspaper she reads. Put it that way. And as as I have. Um, try to, to, to flood the book with, as I say, am, ambivalence and nuance in the way that would make that would render it a sort of anti um, anti you know anti tabloid, as it were, and, and anti anti headline. Um, it felt necessary to me to include someone who actually is unthinkingly resuscitating hateful speech because that has been such a significant part of our of our public and private discourse in this country. And I, and I, I, I put it there relatively uncomplicatedly, whereas the rest of the book is more worked. I love the bit about that particular section. In that section, you have um, the viewpoint is switching back to Jolie and then back to Mrs. Larkin, and the um, they they experience the same thing. So each paragraph, you get the different characters' approach to what they've just done with each other, what they've just talked about, um, influenced by the way that they think about the world and about each other and their assumptions about each other. It's just a re another really clever piece of. Uh, getting you. all these different voices on the page. I wanted to do a, a, a working diagram of otherness and, and, and hostility, mm. with, with the divide being a mock Tudor front door. That was something <laughs> I absolutely had to get in. <laughs> it's very unkind to people that have mock Tudor front doors. <laughs> um, but you know, I've met, I've met, I've met Larton. I've, I've met these these yeah. people. Yeah. Um, can we all give a big hand to Max? <laughs> Thank you for joining us for another episode of Blackwells Presents. Visit our website at www.blackwells.com. Follow our Twitter and Instagram at, at @blackwelloxford. Check our event by page to see what exciting events are coming up in the bookshop. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which features many author interviews. Thank you for listening. <laughs>